0: As part of the Jeremiah Show, it's the Arwen Lewis Show. Arwen Lewis is a singer, a songwriter, and a guitarist. She inhabits our blue planet, but her beliefs belong in the celestial realm. As the daughter of Peter Lewis, a founding member of rock and roll cult icons Moby Grape, and the granddaughter of Oscar winning actress Loretta Young, she's been part of the creative of cosmos all of her life. She's a slice of sonic heaven, poised to enter your heart, mind, and soul. She's an artist, producer, and writer, and she's your radio host. Round
1: Hello, everybody. This is Arwen Lewis, and you're listening to the Arwen Lewis Show. Uh, my show is under the Jeremiah Show platform. And today I have a very special guest calling in all the way from Greenwich Village, New York City uh, Richard Barone. Richard Barone is a recording artist, performer, producer, and author. Since pioneering the indie rock scene in Hoboken, New Jersey, as frontman of the Bongos, and helping to launch the ch- Chamber pop movement with his solo debut, Cool Blue Halo, Barone has produced numerous studio recordings and worked with artists in every musical genre. His list of collaborators has included producer Tony Visconti, Donovan, Lou Reed, and folk legend Pete Seeger. He has scored shows and staged all-star concert events at venues such as Carnegie Hall, the Hollywood Bowl, and Summer Stage in Central Park. His memoir, Frontman, Surviving the Rock Star Myth, was published in 2007, and his album Sorrows and Promises and his latest book, Music and Revolution, uh, that just came out in 2022, are celebrations of the 1960s music scene in Greenwich Village, New York City, where Barone lives. He teaches the course Music and Revolution at the New School's School of Jazz and Contemporary Music served on the Board of Governors of the Recording Academy, served on the Advisory Board of Anthology Film Archives, and hosts Folk Radio on WBAI New York. Richard, hello and <laughs> welcome to the Arwen Lewis Show.
2: Hi, it's so great to see you.
1: It's great to see you too. Uh,
2: thank you for having me on the show today.
1: I can't wait to share all of these <laughs> amazing things that you've been up to. Um, I know we want to talk a lot about your book, uh, Music and Revolution. um, But I thought we could start by kind of going back in time a little bit. And I wanted to ask you, you know, where did your musical journey begin? And what inspired you to start playing music? And what was your first instrument?
2: Wow, that's such a good question. Because I think of it sometimes, like, how did I ever start? And it comes from, in a way, as a child, I had childhood asthma, which made me not able to play outside in the yard so much and play outside with other kids. So I was listening to the radio at home as a kid. And I got really into the pop and rock records on the radio, you know? And so much so that I had my mother um, bring me to a radio station to meet the DJs. And what happened was um, I said I want to be a DJ, and they they basically put me on the air immediately just to say, like, to announce a song. Wow. It was on the, it was a radio station, a top 40 station in Tampa, Florida, where I grew up. And it was uh, W-A-L-T-A-M, a top 40 station. And um, so I announced a record. I believe it was Donovan. I believe it was Sunshine Superman by Donovan, ironically, because now I work with I've been working with him for 20 years. But uh, that's crazy. Uh, <laughs> yes. They put they put me on the radio and they liked it. And I was, you know, just. I don't know, something about it had pe- made people call in and say, who's the little DJ? And I became the littlest DJ and had a Sunday, they put me on a Sunday radio show. It was called Beach Party with the littlest DJ. And I was live on the beach in Tampa, Florida's municipal municipal beach, uh, spinning records and announcing and talking about music. So that was age seven. Wow. Wow. That's when I started and I got obsessed with learning who the producers were. Like you mentioned Tony Visconti because I saw his name on like the first T-Rex records. And I started noticing his name would repeat on things I liked. And, um, and of course, Donovan and it formed a community in my brain, in my head, I a community of musicians that I wanted to work with at a young age. By the time I was 16, Um, I started to meet a lot of the artists because as they came through Florida, I had the the radio station credentials to go backstage and meet them. See what I mean? So I met Tiny Tim and I produced a record for Tiny Tim when I was 16.
1: When you were 16? Wow.
2: and Tiny Tim was a quite you know, he was now, you know, people, he's forgotten and people don't really know him as much, but he had been, he had been quite a superstar. I met him later and he was, he was not quite, at the peak of his career at that time. But I got to work with him and he taught me a lot about the music industry just by speaking with him and understanding the idea of fame and um, how it can uh, ebb and flow, let's say, and also about the history of music because he loved music from the 1920s and 30s. Uh, to me, everything started with the Beatles. Right. But for him, he was taught, he was teaching me that how pop music expanded to such a wide Uh, range and and yeah number of decades that opened my whole mind up to wow you know (laughs) there's so much music and that's been a lifelong thing for me is that i i love the music of my era and this current era and the previous eras and all of it to me is part of the um you know pop music story
1: right and um and is that kind of what brought you into being a pioneer of the indie rock scene in New Jersey? Um, yeah, what's yeah. the bongos? Was that your first band that kind of brought you into the performance realm? In a way? Yeah.
2: Because I had, in high school, I had a band in Florida. It, we, we, you know, I came up really doing the punk. When I started performing, I was really doing the punk rock era. And I loved the Ramones and Sex Pistols and all these bands that were coming out of that time. Um, Patti Smith, I really liked. And, you know, um, that was what got me on stage because I, that was a kind of music in a way it, it was, it connects to the Greenwich village scene in that it's like a folk music of that moment. It was in a way that people could play music in a simple, easy way. You get on stage and just rock it, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know what I mean? That's punk was, it's really a next step in a way. Uh, but from the sixties scene, Patty Smith was a great bridge between the, she loved like, Bill Oaks and Eric Anderson and the, the, those artists from the 60s, but she also was a 70s punk rock artist. So she really bridges those those genres for me. Um, but yeah, that's I got on stage in Florida. I we performed around at the universities, and I knew that I kind of liked it. I thought I was going to have stage fright, but I did not. Not and at all. And not at all. And I um, when I came to New York, I met the other guys in the bongos. We started quite quickly, and it does connect very much with. 60s scene. I mean, we were playing a type, even though we came up in a punk kind of crowd, we were playing kind of folk rock.
1: Yeah. Okay.
2: The Bongos really have a lot of folk rock. And I love that. You know, we like that. It was in our DNA to play in a folk rock kind of style, even if we were combined with punk groups, you know?
1: And I feel like there's such a parallel between folk and punk because they're they're both. um, uh, way, like mediums to express the truth about what's going on, I think, culturally or like, that's you know, right. And they're just different, you know, different styles of music. But totally, yeah. that's why I agree with you. Why Patty yeah. said this, That a cool like bridge yeah. between those two genres for sure. Yeah, it
2: sounds like different volumes, but it's the same, you know, it's like we're la- punk is maybe louder. <laughs> <Yeah>. But really, <laughs> if you look at the chords, it's very, it, there's a lot of similarities. I think, you know, yeah. I'm going to write another book. My next book might cover a little bit of that. Like the idea of how do we get from the '60s to the '70s, you know, and what happened then, you know? Is it in the works? It's in my head. Cool. But so was, So was Music and Revolution. That book was also in my head for like two or three years, as you know, because we did a show, we did shows together at South by Southwest. Right. When I was still, it was still like forming, like the idea: how can this be a story? This is a story. This music tells a story. How do I put it into a book? That was on my mind even then, you know. But I didn't write it till the pandemic.
1: And Sorrows and Promises was kind of yes. like the beginning of that, right? And I wanted to yeah. talk about that. So, Sorrows, you made a record of um, songs from the Greenwich Village folk movement. Yeah. Right? And that's when I met you with yeah. Texas and we did that Absolutely. great showcase. Yeah. Um, but so, why did you choose the particular songs on Sorrows and Promises um, to represent the Greenwich Village folk movement and that way? And where did that idea kind of come from? Where did it begin?
2: thank you 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 asked us great questions and that you know this this allows me to give some credit to uh a a writer and a A anr record company guy mitchell cohen who came to see me at one of my shows in which i was performing 60 songs but not of Greenwich village it was an album you know the nuggets have you heard of the nuggets album by lenny k
1: yeah yeah
2: it's like garage rock of the 60s it's a great a series of albums and they, it's it's celebrating its 50th anniversary this year and so lenny's been in some cities around the country doing the you know uh nuggets shows cool. <laughs> uh he's great i was singing a 60s song very kind of garage rock song at this show and you know it was in my wheelhouse because at age seven i was spinning those records and whatever yeah, yeah. you know i knew the songs so um after the show uh at city winery in new york um Mitchell Cohen, who I knew as an A&R guy at Arista and Columbia Records, a great guy. He said, you know, you should make an album of 60 songs. And I think you should do Greenwich Village in the 1960s. He just as simple as that. And I said, but he didn't say I should sing. And as a producer, I thought he meant like a, a various artist project. Right, right. So I asked, I said, well, who should I get to sing? Who would you like? Who should be on the record? He says, what are you talking about? You. Yeah. And he said, me? <laughs> yes. I said, so... I thought about it, I thought, wow, I would love to get into this. So he's I said, Well, send me a bunch of songs that I can look at, like the titles, and I'll see what I can actually sing. So it really was the stars and promises, which is the album that we pay tribute to at South by Southwest together, yeah. you and I and your dad. Yeah. Was that um was songs that I felt I could pull off and do like just honestly and you know what I mean, like really deliver, you know.
1: So you got to connect with them too, you know. Yes, yes. To that too. Yeah. Okay.
2: Exactly. And so that's what got me going. But what happened was I started researching every song, and I started seeing the story behind the writing of it, and the, you know, the the cover versions that came from each song, and it's opened up a whole world of information to me that was just so rich with history. Mm-hmm. And it's about the neighborhood that I live in and have lived in since 1984, basically. You know, yeah. so. It connected very deeply with me, and also I realized that it was the roots—the roots really of um, all the music that I do. A lot of it comes from this idea of artists writing their own music,
1: right? And also, you created a course on sorrows and promises. If I'm yeah. at New York yeah. University, is that
2: where you're? And, okay. we, yeah, I'm at the New School right now, which is a progressive okay. university. I love it. I love teaching there because it is a progressive school. The students are amazing from all over the world. And, um, and they allow us at the new school to create our own curriculum. So I'm able to teach it in a unique way. Like I, am a professor of it's music history and I teach music and revolution as a lecture course, but also performance. So the students can play. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I really love it. So we do it twice a week on Tuesdays and it's a, it's a 15 week course. And it's like 40 students in the class. So what we do is on Tuesdays, we talk about the scene, but it's based on the book and it's like, all right, it's chronological. And we talk about artists as they arrived in the city, as they they brought their own vibe to the Greenwich Village scene. Also, what created the style of music? Like, what were they listening to before? What kind of folk music were they listening to? How did that change? How did it become psychedelic? you know it's really a beautiful story really and we so we look at the music in a verbal way and also watching videos and discussing on Tuesdays and then on Thursdays they play the songs
1: that's so great so does um does everybody bring their own instrument to class yeah. Okay. yeah,
2: we we teach the class now in a theater. So it's a small theater at the school. So we're able to have all the equipment right there. So the students can just if there's a Steinway piano, there's whatever they need. And, you know, they will tell me on the Tuesday who wants to perform. Okay. And then they'll be like on the early part of Thursday, I'll, I'll sort of brush up on some things I want to cover for that week. And then they just play the songs. It's very exciting for me to watch them. How uh, do they the young, choose
1: what instruments they're going to play?
2: Uh, well, uh, all of them are music majors at the school. Okay. All of them have to audition to get in because it's also combined with the Manus School of Music in New York, which is like Juilliard. It's like, okay. these are great. music. These students really play. <laughs> they play way better than I play. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're very, very good. And um, and so they know what they want to play. Men, most of them are multi-instrumentalists. Okay. So one woman will just pick up a banjo and just start wailing on the banjo or acoustic guitar or piano, you know, and also because the Greenwich Village scene included jazz. Mm-hmm. Some of these students, this is a jazz, it's actually officially called the Department of Jazz and Contemporary Music. A lot of the students are very good jazz musicians. So they bring a whole new style of um playing to like a Dylan song or something, you know, uh, that's very jazzy, but it's great.
1: What an experience for you as an as a professor! Too. Yeah, <laughs> like how oh yeah, how to teach and such I love it. Are have you ever thought about making like an album of your students' work?
2: Sure, for their class. We've talked about it, and I do try to bring them in to do. At the end of last uh, semester, we did a concert at the Bitter End, which was one of the venues that was there in the sixties. You know, and. Uh, I'm sure at some point, you're, I'm sure your father either went or played there too.
1: I played there with my dad. You played, played. great, yeah, isn't that great? 2015,
2: you know, mm-hmm. Great. You know, it's it's just it's kind of a rundown. Old, I mean, not to, not to criticize, but you know, yeah, it's a great place. It's it's and they're very welcoming to my class, and so uh, the students then this gives them a door to do gigs there because we'll do like I'll do a music and revolution show there like we've done at South by Southwest you know where they all play the songs and then they get gigs there so it's like it really helps them get the uh, a head start
1: yeah, it sounds like, and that's like kind of the complete experience with a prestigious music school, right? You go, yeah. you get the education, you have the culture, like cultural experience with your contemporaries, and then you get out there and work however you choose to disperse yourself in the yeah. professional realm.
2: Yes, yes, they and these students are very willing to and wanting to get out there to perform. Cool. So, uh, so I definitely encourage it. You know.
1: Well, how about, so you have, I know this is sold out, so people can't get tickets anymore. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your Carnegie Hall um show coming up. How did, what's what's the format of the show? And I know that we're going to be, um, you're going to be talking about music and revolution. Um, yeah, yeah. What's the show going to be?
2: Well, you know, um, it really is an extension of what you and I did in South by Southwest. It's just grown that the whole idea of it, it's not, it has a life of its own. I think mm-hmm. because it's not really me pushing, it's the people wanting the music. Like, right. um, after we did our South by Southwest show, which was like a five hour <laughs> <I> kind <know. laughs> so of some people couldn't stay for the whole time because it was just so long and there were other shows happening, but we did have a fantastic crowd. Oh, yeah. Um, it was so much fun. And so, the, what we do, you know, people choose what songs they want to do. Uh, I try to guide so that the songs tell a type of story uh but yeah it's the carnegie hall shows it's like an extension of what what i we started with sorrows and promises and those early shows it we did bring it to central park in 2018 that was a huge event and a lot of over 5,000 people i mean it was great it was a really good uh, event in which i brought john sebastian of the love and spoonful to sing and i had uh, melanie i don't know if you know melanie a great 60s artist and um and we had uh, Maria Mulder, who I really like. Her daughter, I work with Jenny. Nice. Um, we we had a fence and we had um Colin uh, Jesse Colin Young of the Young Bloods and and Jose Feliciano, and other. It was it was a huge show. Was, yeah. There were a lot of people, and so, uh, so I, I I it I knew that I wanted to do more with that. Excuse me. When the book came out, I performed a show with a great cast also at the the museum of the city of New York. Okay. And that was really fun, Uh, but not really a concert because it was at a museum. So the next step was to make a really a formal concert version. And that was Carnegie hall. So it's going to be November 19th.
1: Oh, well, congratulations. Um, um, I want to go into more of all these because you produce so many cool shows and you've done it at all these prestigious venues. Um, We're going to get ready to run out to break really quickly. Okay. Uh, for those of you who are just tuning in, uh, this is Arwen Lewis on the Arwen Lewis Show. My very, very special guest is Richard Barone today. He re- he's a recording artist, performer, producer, and author. Uh, we're talking about his career in the music business and also his recent book release called Music and Revolution. It's He's Got a sold out show at Carnegie Hall coming up for the book Music and Revolution. And then um, if you want to find out more about Richard, uh, you can look him up on richardbarone.com. Uh, You spell Barone, B-A-R-O-N-E. Look him up on Facebook under Richard Barone or on Instagram at Richard Barone. And uh, we're going to take everybody out to break with the song When I'm Gone and then bring you back in with I Belong to Me. Um, Is there anything you want to say about When I'm Gone or I Belong to Me, Richard, before we take him out?
2: Well, When I'm Gone is written by Phil Oakes, who was really one of my favorite songwriters in the 1960s era. Mm-hmm. And it's the, it's going to be the opening song, but not sung only by me, but in a special arrangement with a few of the artists uh, as this opening song at Carnegie Hall. So I really love it. And I belong to me was my first song I wrote as a, when I went solo from my group, the bongos. Oh, and it was wonderful. It was, That's sort of the meaning for me.
1: All right, everybody will please okay. enjoy Richard Brown's music. And we'll be right back. Mm-hmm.
3: From the rain when I'm gone And I can't even suffer from the pain when I'm gone Can't say who's to praise and who's to blame when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here Won't we'll see the golden of the sun when I'm gone And the evenings and the mornings will be one when I'm gone be singing louder than the guns when I'm gone, so I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here. All my days won't be dances of delight when I'm gone, and the signs will be shifting from my side when I'm gone. Can't add my name into the fight when I'm gone, so I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here.
0: Hey, this is Robert LaRoche coming to you from Austin, Texas. I've got a brand new CD out called Forevermore on OMAD Records out of New York City. And you are listening to The Arwen Lewis Show. Ciao. Ciao. <music>
1: Hi everybody, this is Arwen Lewis, and you're listening to The Arwen Lewis Show. My very special guest is recording artist, performer, producer, and author from Greenwich Village, New York, Richard Barone. Um, We just brought you back in from break uh, with one of the first songs, or the first song he wrote for his band, The Bongos, called I Belong to Me. And we're here talking about Richard's extensive career in the music business and especially about his recent book that's just been released uh, called Music and Revolution. Um, Richard teaches a class called Music and Revolution at the New School's School of Jazz and Contemporary Music. He's got a sold out event at Carnegie Hall um, in celebration of this book. And we were talking earlier about the format of that concert. And also, um, as you can probably see on the screen, if you're watching the YouTube video, um, there's a very cool cover for this book. And I know you've got some cool stories behind the cover, Richard. Do um, <laughs> you want to tell us about it?
2: <laughs> sure, sure. Well, you know, I was trying to figure out what the cover should be. And there was a lot uh, as I was writing the book, and there was a lot that I wanted to sort of say in it. And one was the idea of revolution also connects with um, political revolutions and through history. So, I wanted to have a lot of sort of historical uh, signals in the cover. Uh, but, but two important elements to me of this book are the smallest elements. One is the very tiny dotting of the eye for revolution, which is a photo I took of the Washington Square Arch in the center of Greenwich Village. And a lot of the action takes place in that park. A lot of the music was developed by musicians just hanging out in that park playing music on their acoustic guitars. I mean, even Jimi Hendrix, when he came to the village, would sit in the park with Richie Havens, his friend, and they would jam on music in the park. I mean, it's 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 a special place. So I wanted to make sure to squeeze that into the cover at some spot. And then the dot, uh, the dot of uh, the letter I in music, is a peace sign, and that's because when I spoke to Donovan on the phone and showed him the cover, he said to remember to make people remember that it was a peaceful revolution. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to have, he said, you've got to have a peace sign on the cover. So I squeezed that in on the letter I. And then the other letter I is the Washington Square Arch. Those are my personal uh, symbols. But the design was done by Roger Gorman, who I knew as an album cover designer. First, because he did a lot of David Bowie's uh, album covers and won Grammy Awards for them. But also he did some of my album covers as well. And is a great designer. So that's where it came from.
1: It's got a very um, eye-catching design for sure. And where can people buy the book, Richard?
2: Well, it's basically everywhere online, you know, and, and, you know, bookstores in New York have it, the, the strand is for people, people in New York, the strand has been fantastic and so supportive with the, a big display of it and just they've been great but they can but anywhere in the country in the world people can find it at amazon.com and all those places where people find books it's 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 well distributed and i'm just thrilled because it's also the textbook for my students it's not just it's for the people of course but it's right. also for my students and it's i'm happy to see a textbook also being enjoyed by just general pu- public you know
1: I feel like a lot of um, books like that are they're just so valuable, obviously, to like, you know, like just socially having something mm-hmm. to talk about at a party or yeah, you know, intellectually true. really diving into things um, when yeah. you're in school um, and going back to David Bowie a little bit. Yeah. I know you just got back from London um, for yeah. a performance in a Mark Boland celebration concert. Yes. And Dana Gillespie was part of yeah. that, right? And she yeah. had, she did a lot of work with David Bowie, if I'm correct.
2: Yeah, they were good friends. He really supported her and promoted her. He, You know, Bowie had certain artists that he really helped a lot. Lou Reed was one. Cool. Dana was one. Uh, Martha Hoople is a group that he really supported in the 70s. I mean, he li- if he liked an artist, he really did a lot. Iggy Pop, he really did a lot for. Her. So, yes, she was one. She recorded his song, The Man Who Sold the World, and did a fantastic version of that. Uh, I believe. And other song, other things. So he, She did a lot of work with Bowie and and I think she was also signed to the same manager. I think oh. he helped her get a management and that sort of thing. So yeah, she was there. She was great. That was a fantastic show.
1: Yeah. Can um, you tell us a little bit about it? What was, what was, did you put it on or were you just no, part of it as a I performer? Was, that, one, that one I was
2: part of because Tony Visconti, my producer and, and David Bowie's producer and Mark Poland's producer invited me to um, perform in that uh, in London. Uh, he said I'd be perfect for it. I was the only American in the show, to be honest.
4: Oh, great. It's, It was all
2: British. And I loved it. Um, I loved it because as a, a kid, I also was very into T-Rex. They were a band that crossed over from acoustic sort of folk, British folk tradition, into rock and glam rock. You know, he, it was an interesting transition. And I saw them when I was in high school. I saw T-Rex perform, and I fell in love with his guitar playing. So it's been a lifelong you know, uh, fan situation where I love T-Rex. I know this, I know the son, his son, Roland and Gloria Jones, who was his girlfriend. I mean, I know them and I uh, love them. So it was, a, it was, a, had a special meaning to perform at this celebration of his, uh, of his life. He passed away 45 years ago that week. So it was a, it was an anniversary and uh, he died very young in a car accident at uh, 29, uh, Mark Boland. So we, you know, we didn't get, we only got a short time with him, but he brought some great music and inspired me as a guitar player. So uh, Mark Allman of the uh, group Soft Cell of the 80s was um, performing. He was fantastic. He was one of the organizers of that. Okay. And, and Holly Johnson of, um, of Frankie Goes to Hollywood. These are, these are 80s icons, if you yeah. ask me. And <laughs> yeah. then Dana was there, and there were so many others. It was a fantastic show with the string section, which Tony conducted. Cause T-Rex really combined like, you know, electric guitar with string sections. That was mm-hmm. kind of a new sound too, you know? So yeah, yeah that was, I was,
1: was going to say, that's such a cool thing that I love when they put strings in rock music, it yes. makes me so happy.
2: <laughs> yes. Yes. That, you know, that was a, it's a, there's a great tradition of that. I think with the beat, the Beatles did that, but I, uh, you know, Visconti came up just to, around that time and after and it was uh, does a, a fantastic job with this with, with strings on the in rock you know and that it really is a great sound it's it's it adds so much to the sound it helps you know
1: well and i mean and so that's probably like your producer brain notices that a little <laughs> bit um probably <laughs> yeah. the yes the show oh um, yeah yeah, yeah. And you've had some amazing production experience and collaboration experience um, as far as like collaborating and producing, like you worked with, like you said, Tony Visconti, Donovan, yeah, yeah. Lou Reed, yeah. Pete yeah. Seeger. Um, yeah. Can you tell us about these experiences a little bit? Wow. Yeah.
2: It's always a thrill because these are people that I admire so much, you know, so mm-hmm. when when I've been able to produce and work with artists, I worked with Liza Manelli, even in quite a range, you know, and the thing is that I, what I bring I want to bring. I want to do. I want to do what's right for them, basically. And each, so each one is going to be different. I think as a producer, my goal is not to have my own sound brought into what they do, but to just uh, bring to life what they want, what they have inside that they want to bring. So for Pete Seeger, uh, I had been, as you can see by the music that I do with Music and Revolution, Pete Seeger is a key figure in why the whole revolution of music happened. Because he was started doing this in the nineteen forties, through the fifties, then he was blacklisted for his politics. He could not perform, but worked in the back, sort of in the background. He was a guiding force for Phil Oakes, for Bob Dylan, for so many others. Uh, Pete Seeger was sort of like the grandfather figure or or father figure for a lot of them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So to finally get a chance to work with him at at his request uh, was a thrill. He had just. I was perform I was producing a concert, actually, which was a benefit for an oil spill that had happened in the. Or it must have been around 2010 or so. Uh, the, a, the a BP oil rig exploded or whatever, and threw oil into the Gulf of Mexico. And we were trying to do a cleanup effort um, or fundraiser in New York, mm-hmm. and. I thought, who can we call to perform? And the first name that came to me was, well, Phil, Pete Seeger would be fantastic in this. So we, I called him. I got his home phone number, and we became instant friends. And he sang to me a song he had just written that mentioned the oil spill. He was already in his nine. He was ninety.
1: Uh huh. Okay. Wow.
2: And he had already written a protest song about the spill. And I, okay. because so I said, well, you have to be in the show. And he, I said, oh, and by the way, have you recorded this song yet? And he said, "Not yet." I said, "Well, would you like to? Can we do that?" So I was invited by him to produce the ver- recorded version of that song. It's wow. called "God's, God's Counting on Me." God's Counting on You. It's one of his last recordings. And he said he wanted to make a. I showed him. I went to his house and we looked at YouTube. He had not really seen YouTube before. This was 2010, but you know, YouTube was already going. But he didn't. He didn't really know that much about it so, or social media. But he was really amazed by how many people can see a YouTube video. And he wanted his song to reach a lot of people. So he said, we have to make a video for this. So people can, you can find it on, if you go to YouTube, God's counting on me, God's counting on you, Sloop Mix, because it was recorded at the last minute, he decided live on the Sloop Clearwater, which was his boat that he initiated in, in 1967 to be a symbol of cleaning up the water in New York, in the New York area, at the Hudson River. Okay. So when when it was time, to, we, I had a studio booked, to be honest. Yeah. We, had a, we had a studio booked to go do the song, but then at the last minute, I think maybe a day before or at the most a day and a half before the sh- recording, he said, he called me, he says, Richard, I, I want to record on the boat. And I said, the boat. And he goes, the clear water, because it made sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And so we said, okay, Pete, whatever you want. Again, as a producer, you have to be flexible. The artist wants to record on a boat with no electricity. <laughs> With with no with not, no equipment at all, but he wanted to do that. So we we quickly gathered a generator and got the equipment that we needed to record it on the on the Clearwater, and you can watch it on on YouTube. You can see the fear in my face at the beginning. because is it going to work? Is the, you can see the you can see me finally relaxing into it because yeah. I'm in the video with him. You know, it's really interesting. But that's Pete Seeger. That was such a thrill to record that for him.
1: Um, how about, well, yeah. And then also like, I just want to finish up on that idea, like seconding the fact that it was just like a great metaphor to record on the boat and for the yeah, yeah, and what the yeah. cause you were going for and everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also how did that experience compare to working with Lou Reed? Um, what was your experience? Okay. Like? Cause I know he's taught you a lot too, right? Where you yes, kind of protégé. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. You know, with Lou, I met him when I, when I moved from Florida to New York, he was one of the first people I met in a guitar shop. He was obsessed with guitars and audio obsessed. Mm -hmm. And I love that about him. And he, because I never would have thought because the Velvet Underground's records were not considered like the most audiophile recordings. Right. To say the least. They're very rough. I love them, but it's a very rough recording on on a lot of the early Velvet stuff. I, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just the way they played it. I love, it was groundbreaking, but uh, I was surprised to know how, truly an audiophile he was and how he looked for the finest instruments and the the finest headphones everything was just a very he was very particular with his sound um so i was in a guitar shop i came to a guitar shop because my own guitar got pretty much beat up on the trip to, from florida to be honest so i had, had to trade it in to get a new one and in the shop was lou reed i was about eight i was about 19 years oh, wow. old at the time yeah. and i i saw this so i had to say hello mr reed i'm a fan you know i'm a real fan of your music so he was like very nondescript like oh, okay okay he said like, what are you doing here and i said i'm looking for a guitar and he suggested for me and this was brilliant because he was brilliant he asked me what i liked i said i liked the beatles i said that because i don't know if he did because he, velvet underground were kind of the opposite and so they were like the anti-beatles in some ways <laughs> yeah. you know? but i he um, he's pointed to a rickenbacker guitar that was in the corner that was not popular at that time okay it was not very popular it was a, he had a, it was a great rickenbacker six, st- six string electric guitar it was a 1965 model and it was hidden in the corner way in the farthest reach of the store that was kind of a funky guitar shop on 48th street and he, he pointed, he said, why don't you try that? And he, that was the most brilliant thing because I did try it and it was my favorite guitar that I had at that time. And it really became a big part of the sound of the bongos when we formed. Wow. Okay. So that was my first encounter with Lou Reed. We had, it was an ongoing thing for many reasons. For one thing, we're both New Yorkers who loved who he loved and I love New York city. It's like he is, he was Mr. New York when he was alive, really. And, um, so we came and cro- we crossed paths constantly. Um, <clears throat> when the Bongos signed to RCA, that was also the label he was signed to. Okay. So his wife Sylvia, at the time, brought him a copy of the first Bongos record we did called "Numbers with Wings," and uh, he liked it and called me. So I reminded him that we had met, you know, because we'd seen each other through at different times. But we became that—that that really started a whole new wave of friendship. Was when he liked the Bongos and he. We would compare notes on engineers to work with or producers or studios and that became an ongoing thing it, it was a lifelong a uh, friendship for me i got to work with them on many shows i've never produced him in the studio but i got to produce live events with lou he was very interested in scoring live because the velvets did this scoring mm-hmm. films live
1: okay yeah so
2: so when i would produce for instance in later years the um events for the anthology film archives that you mentioned earlier on as one of my i'm on the board uh, right. advisory board i produce concerts fundraisers for them and which i love to do and um lou would perform and he would uh he would score like old silent films with his electric guitar oh my so i want to
1: pick up on that when we come back from break yeah. I, oh gonna wait
2: a break, break. okay okay <laughs>
1: Um, I talk, no, I
2: know I talk too much. I'm so sorry. I'm a professor. I, you know, it's part of my job.
1: No, this is perfect. Please keep talking. Um, I okay. feel terrible having to cut the thought off. No, it's okay. We have tons of cool stuff to talk about right when we come back from break.
2: Uh, right. And
1: everybody, uh, this is Arwen Lewis on the Arwen Lewis Show. My very special guest is Richard Barone. And we're taking you out to break with his song, uh, "Riki Tiki Tavi, and then bringing you back in with the bongos. Okay. And that's going to be Numbers with Wings. And we'll be right back. Please enjoy.
2: Yeah,
3: Mongoose is gone. Now, anybody who read the jungle book knows that Ricky tikki Tilly's a mongoose who kill snakes. When I was a young man, I was led to believe there were organizations for killing my snakes for me. I need the church, I need the government, I need school. But when I got a little older, I learned how to kill them myself. Alright! Ricky mongoose is gone.
4: Hey there, this is Brian Delaney and you're listening to the Arwen Lewis Show.
1: This is Arwen Lewis, and you're listening to The Arwen Lewis Show. My very special guest is recording artist, performer, producer, and author Richard Barone. And you just heard his song uh, Numbers with Wings from his band called The Bongos. And Richard's a founding member of The Bongos, and also he's just released a book called Music and Revolution. He has an amazing event coming up at Carnegie Hall um, in focus on his book Music and Revolution. And that's also um, in sync with Music Cares. Is that correct, Richard? Did you want to talk a little bit about that?
2: Sure. Music Cares is the gram- My favorite part of the Recording Academy, which I've been a member of since 1983, as uh, when, I, when the Bongos first started, I joined the Grammys uh, Recording Academy. But I love Music Cares. They it's a it's an organization, a charity for musicians in need and almost all musicians have needs all musicians have needs not almost all musicians have various needs and and music cares uh addresses that and comes to the aid of so many whether it's health care or all kinds of issues uh music cares is a great organization that I support and so the concert at Carnegie Hall is a benefit primarily for music cares and also uh, a portion is being given to the it's 100% benefit but music heirs and then the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation because without the village this story would not exist and so i wanted to make sure we give back to the village as well as music heirs both the great organizations i wanted to mention that when you play those two songs you also played Ricky Tiki Tavi by mm-hmm. Donovan. as written by Donovan okay and that a, was a really fun track I just did for a, a recent, current album that's a, a Songs of 1970. They asked me to do this, a, a choose a song from that year, and I chose Ricky tiki tavi And Donovan makes a very quiet guest appearance on that recording. Oh. Uh, if you listen to it, if your listeners can rewind, whatever they can hear, uh, Donovan uh, speaks a few, couple lines in there.
1: Yeah. Oh, how beautiful.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, so did you record that with him or did you bring him in he- after?
2: Well, he was in Ireland. I was. I did that in New York, so we had to do it by you know long distance. Yeah. Uh, uh, just the way we're doing our interview now. But yeah, he he was in on it. You know, we uh, long distance. I get to work with him once in a while, but he does live in in Ireland now. Okay. You know. Yeah. Well,
1: and so as a producer, I mean, you've had some ama- amazing production experience with all musical genres. Um, yeah. But even though in your extensive experience so far as producing all of these artists. Um, If you could produce an artist or write a song with an artist who you haven't met yet, who would it be? Uh,
2: You know, the first one that comes to mind is always John Lennon. Mm -hmm. I just I love John Lennon's work. And I like the way he was able to combine pop music with message with a message. So Mm -hmm. often, you know, he he was able to do that in a very natural way. I would have loved to collaborate to have collaborated with him. I, I do know and have worked with Sean, his son sean i've also i also know julian lennon through uh years ago with with the bongos we were always on on tour at the same time we'd meet up but with sean i've actually gotten a chance to collaborate a few times including a south by southwest uh during a tribute to lou reed we uh sean and i performed together and these that was very special for me uh to be connected with uh the, the lennon family in that way but i i would love to have done something with john lennon yeah. I love Yoko too by the way. I love Yoko and her music and I would love to collaborate with her one day too.
1: Oh right. Okay. Uh, for some reason yeah. I thought you had. Okay, but maybe I remember I, you I have telling
2: me friend uh, in in talk, talking with, with her. Yes, but I would love to do music with her, you know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Um, how about this is something interesting that I like to talk to producers about too. Um, do you dif- do you produce yourself first of all? Well, ever? not not um... I'd rather not
2: produce myself.
1: I I love
2: collaborating with the producer, yeah. especially one who I admire and already know their work. I like I like that experience. Maybe because I learn so much. But I have had to, like, I produced the Ricky Ticky Tavi song you just heard because right. it was like, like okay, I'm going to go do the song. And it's just like, it's just, this is how I'm doing it now. It's just, it's a different approach. Like, when I have a producer, it's, it's, there's a formality to it that I do like very much. And I've, I was kind of started that way with the Bongos. Our producer was Richard godderer who had been a fantastic uh, producer. And okay. I knew his history. So he brought a lot. I like working with a producer, is my short answer.
1: <laughs> no. I agree with you because it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, it It depends. Like if you're just going to do something that's kind of an easy idea, like the yeah, thing yeah. you just did, it's right. nice to have the skills to be able to produce yourself. But it's yeah. also, it's just nice to have somebody else's perspective, you know, and like you just said, you learn something new about yourself and yeah. new about the music. Um, yeah. Do you, depending on who you're working with as a producer um, and within within each um, project that you have, like for Mm -hmm. the bongos or for your solo work or Sorrows and Promises, does your choice of instruments change or is it just the style of which you play the instruments for those projects?
2: That's interesting. I do do like to switch up instruments. Um, Okay. You know, I was mentioning off camera. Uh, a minute ago about the, the bongos having a new track coming out for the holidays. Mm-hmm. And for that, we really switched up and we used, for instance, a baritone guitar, which I had never really used with the bongos before. But one of the key sounds of that new record is going to be a baritone guitar, which uh, the other guitar player, James Mastro plays on the record. And I played yeah. my, I played my traditional, uh, J, I played J 160 E Gibson, which was what John Lennon played. I have a john lennon model i'm sorry i just love it <laughs> <laughs> it's an acoustic electric you know awesome. but uh but i like mixing it up and i think you know whenever i can i try to try different instruments i think that was an, ex- uh, an experiment that the 60s artists did a lot was to try different instruments whenever they could you know to pop something in that was unexpected yeah. certainly in this in the psychedelic era they were trying all kinds of different sounds and things and i love that maybe i i kind of was it's in my dna to try new sounds know yeah.
1: well um how about this christmas song that's coming out can you talk right. about it what's the genre of the christmas it's song?
2: it's really fun it's a very to me almost nostalgic sound almost like a 50s kind of rock and roll
1: cool
2: you know i've been listening to eddie cochran lately who was a 50s artist and i've been listening to or, uh, buddy holly again and that was a big inspiration to the bongos, even though that was decades after we were like you we came around three decades after buddy holly but still we love buddy holly's the simple Almost folky pop rock thing. And this song is, for us, it's just, it was a natural, very uh, nostalgic kind of uh, holiday song. I oh. can't really, I can't really explain it much other than that. And, and I think we, we captured a, a vibe that's, uh, that's uniquely nostalgic, but new, but sounds new.
1: And do we have a date for the release of it or should we just keep an eye out?
2: I heard a rumor that it's on Sony, Sony Records, Sony Music. And I think it com- I think they were saying it comes out October 6th, which is really soon for Christmas, but it is a Christmas song. But oh, well, be on the lookout for it in the holidays. They, they start very early with holidays, it seems this, these these days. You
1: know? They're right up my alley. I'm like, October 1st comes around. I'm ready to buy my Christmas tree.
2: Really? OK, then, then October. <laughs> well, October 1st is my birthday. So by, that's good.
1: And oh. the bongos are performing on that day in
2: Hoboken, which was our hometown. It's very nice. It'll be nice on my on that day. And uh, that's next Sunday uh, as of the recording of this show uh, is uh, the bongos in Hoboken.
1: Nice. Now- yeah, I wanted to ask about um, how can people see you perform live? Well,
2: uh, that's one if they happen to be in this area, the New York area, because um, Hoboken is right across the river, of course. And uh, that's where we started. And we're playing there October 1st. Uh, it's going to be a great show. And uh, it's a free, a free concert. I try to do a lot of free concerts when we can. You know, this one is one for sure. And um, it's in the it's in the out it's outdoors in Hoboken, an outdoor event. Okay uh then otherwise i am the next show because i really am focusing on the carnegie hall show so for this year th- that's going to be pretty much be the main focus i'm producing a concert which is the music of uh, Stephen schwartz the broadway uh, composer okay in, in philadelphia on the, uh november 13th at the Kimmel center also a huge venue uh i'm not in that i'm producing it and i'm thrilled it's all broadway the whole cast is broadway people
1: beautiful thank you um and the are you ever involved in off-Broadway productions? And yes. Broadway too? Okay. Oh, yes!
2: I love it. I love. I've I worked with Michael Greif, uh, who, produ- who uh, directed Rent, oh. and I worked. I worked on his next piece, which was Bright Lights, Big City. That got me involved in writing and working in theater, and I worked. I have worked on the Larry Kerwin of Black uh, Forty Seven. That's his group, but he's also writes musicals. And his latest musical, uh, I've been involved with writing that uh, as well. That's an off-Broadway production.
1: Well, you yeah. seem to have tied every medium <laughs> of uh, performance, art and literary um, mediums into your life. And as you you know, really as your role as a music historian, you know, like you're living all aspects of it, which is so amazing. It's been so awesome to recap your career and thank talk you. about, yeah, talk about all of this. Um, we're going to run out to break again really quickly. Richard, thank you so much for sharing all of this. Of course. Uh, For those of you who are just tuning in, my very special guest is um, Greenwich Village-based recording artist, performer, producer, and author Richard Barone. Find out more about him at richardbarone.com. Look him up on Facebook under Richard Barone or Instagram at Richard Barone. And we're going to take you out to break with his song, River to River, and bring you back in with Streets of New York. Um, Anything you want to share about these two songs before we head out to break, Richard? Wow.
2: Well, I'll say that uh, Streets of New York was written by an artist here in the village named Willie Nile, who I really like. And this okay. is from a tribute to Willie's songwriting. And I was thrilled to do this song. I had been on tour with him and I heard him do it every night in a very different arrangement, just at the piano. And when they asked me to do a song for this tribute album, I chose it and made it more of a rock. A little hint of Lou Reed in the production. And... Uh, uh, it was a thrill to do that. And River to River is from for my, my second solo album called Primal Dream. And I just love the production by Richard Goddard on that record. So those, those are two good choices. Thank you for picking those.
1: Oh, my yeah. gosh. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> of course. Um, well, please enjoy these songs by Richard Barone. And we'll be right back.
3: take you
0: Hey, this is Robert LaRoche coming to you from Austin, Texas. I've got a brand new CD out called Forevermore on OMAD Records out of New York City. And you are listening to The Arwin Lewis Show. Ciao.
3: E
1: Hello, everybody. This is Arwen Lewis. You're listening to The Arwen Lewis Show. My very special guest today is Richard Barone. Um, He is a recording artist, performer, producer, and author based out of Greenwich Village, New York. You can find out more about him at richardbarone.com, on Facebook under Richard Barone, and on Instagram at Richard Barone and we've been talking about his extensive career as a musician performer music historian his book music and revolution which has a music cares benefit coming up at carnegie hall it's sold out which is really exciting and um we've been featuring richard's music in the breaks of the show today and we're gonna feature his song in its entirety yet another midnight um coming up in just a minute at the end of the show and richard i thought we could finish up by you telling us about the song
2: Well. Wow. Thank you for playing this, choosing this song. It's a special one for me. Again, we mentioned a couple times Tony Visconti, and I wrote the song with Tony, uh, and he produced it. And it's one of my favorite ones we wrote and that he produced for me ever. Um, it was, I, I, the title came from a New Year's Eve television broadcast in which a commentator said, It's yet another midnight, meaning another place in the world was having its midnight to bring in the new year. So it's about the anticipation or fear or whatever that happens when you when you think of a new year, right? It's right. positive, but it's also what's going to happen. So it's it's really about that. That yet another midnight is about is the midnight of New Year's Eve, and we had some really great t- when you talked about instruments, unusual instruments. We had some great equipment uh, because uh, we had some of David Bowie's electronic gear that he used on the German albums he made with Tony Visconti, to Heroes and Low were two very special albums to me uh, using electronics in pop music. And we had the gear in that studio that day, just by a fluke. And we were able to use these interesting instruments, um, as well as my our normal guitars and things. And it's just, the sounds just really flows and comes together in a beautiful way. And this, this Tony picked this to be on his box set, which is a retrospective of his best work that just came out on demon records, the BBC's label it okay. came out in in England this month. So it was just released in the UK on this box set. And I'm so thrilled because I, I'd like people to hear the song.
1: Well, and what a group of songs to be included with too. Oh, I know,
2: I know. Yeah, well, thank you.
1: Thank you. So the
2: songs, much that, songs, to... one thing, songs that inspired me so much when I was growing up. So it's a thrill to be part of that. That's really, that's really my point. You know.
1: Well, and what's been so cool about you and your career is that it seems like you just continue to keep coming full circle in all these new and innovative ways um, within your passions and everything that you're so interested about. And thank you. you, know, and the way you share your music, you know, you really explore like every realm, which is quite exceptional. So thank, thank you for you. being you. <laughs> and thank you for having me,
2: Arwen. It's such a thrill to to be to reconnect with you in this way and to be on your show. I really loved it.
1: Me too. It, it went by too fast. <laughs>
2: yes. 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 Um.
1: Well, everybody, uh, we're going to go ahead and leave you with Richard Barone's song that he was just telling you about, Yet Another Midnight, and find out more about Richard Barone again on richardbarone.com, Facebook under Richard Barone, and on Instagram at Richard Barone. It's been such a treat. Thank you kindly. Thank you. so much. right. We'll see you soon. Everybody, please enjoy Yet Another Midnight by Richard Barone.
0: show was brought to you by evolve entertainment host and executive producer Arwen lewis executive producer jeremiah d higgins producer and sound engineer richard dr d dugan you can find arwin lewis and all of her music at arwin and follow her on instagram at arwin lewis